everybody. We have a really lovely interview coming up today with Angela Smith, who is a remote viewer, and she's a classic remote viewer. Um, she's been well-trained. She was with PERS, Pers in, at Princeton and um, has been able to mm, connect with um, information far beyond what normal normally happens in remote viewing in that she's been able to connect with species in other dimensions and from other places within the universe so that they can share with us what their experience of life is as opposed to earth and also their experience with each other and their interface with human beings. So without further ado, let's go to Angela Smith. And Angela, it's so good to have you here today. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to this interview. Um, I just have to say one thing. I have to tell you, this all came up because I was having lunch last weekend with Russell Targ, whose new documentary, Third Eye Spies, about his years with um, the CIA and remote viewing, is coming out soon. So he and Paula Harris and I were all having lunch together, and your name came up, and he said, yes, she's very good. And I thought, <laughs> that's all I need is to hear it from the spy <laughs> trainer himself. <laughs> So, Angela, um, first of all, let's, I, I would like our audience to get to know you a bit and, and how this started showing itself for you in your childhood, these abilities, because it is a, a unique skill set that we all can access if we were so inclined, but some people just have it built in a little more naturally. It expresses earlier in life. So let's talk about you as a little girl and seeing. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. And uh, I had an ability when I was a child uh, called out-of-body experience. And it wasn't just a one-off thing. This occurred all the way through my childhood and early teens. And I thought everybody could do it until I learned not everybody can do it uh, in my 20s. And um, then started researching. So I was always an intuitive child. Well, let's, let's talk about the nature of the out-of-body experiences and then the proofs you were getting and also how your parents um, aligned with this. Okay, well, I would, when, I would get, when I was put to bed, before I went to sleep, and I knew the difference between waking dreams and, um, you know, like imagination, etc., um, I would go in my mind, it would go sit upon the roof. And I would go wander around the neighborhood, visit family and friends. And I visited my head teacher's house because she was a very kind person. And I saw lots of cut glass and crystal around her house. And one day I was talking to her and I told her this in my childish innocence, childhood innocence. And she said, how do you know that? I said, I saw it. And she said, oh, and she just let it drop. Um, but I knew from that, I was about 10 maybe when that happened, 8, 9, 10. Um, so I thought, okay, well, the, I, I, it seems like I really can do this. And in my teens, I put it aside for a while because I thought perhaps I was causing things to happen. I would see um, accidents or catastrophes and uh, I, I stopped for a while. I was fairly religious in my teens. And uh, then in my 20s and 30s, I was at um, Cardiff University and then at Manchester University uh, doing degrees. And I joined up with a group called the Outer Limits of the Mind. <laughs> it was an evening group. And 
I started researching and going when people went on vacation, I asked, can I remote view you on holiday? As a little girl, when you said you were religious and in your teens, you were starting to think that you you were actually the cause of these accidents because you were seeing them. So was it this somehow mixed in with the notion um, you were doing the devil's work or something? Um, by Not really. Well, how did no, it feel? It was uncomfortable um, seeing these things. And I was trying to look for some causes and reasons. And I said, okay, I'm not going to do this for now. And then later on, I, I started, uh, you know, researching again, personal research. And you ended up, I mean, you seem just to be the most kind and nurturing person. So it's not a surprise to anyone that you did get a degree early on in nursing and that you were also working with children. You also got a degree in psychology. And so let's talk about how this other skill set of yours was perhaps overlaying um, your education and the other services you were providing, such as maybe by way of, say, medical intuition. When I was a, a nurse, um, I, I entered nursing training at 18 and did a three-year, it's a different process in England. You're actually on the wards right from the very beginning. Um, and then you take out, you know, weeks out for school. And I often knew when a patient pressed a bell and needed something before I went into their room, I knew what they wanted. But I learned that you can't go in with whatever they want right away because it freaks <laughs> them out. <laughs> How did you know what I wanted? So I would leave whatever it was outside the room, go in, ask, let them tell me what they wanted. I'd go and get it. And they'd say, well, that was quick. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a sweet story. I love it. Were you able at times to even perhaps see something going on in, in, in their bodies that the doctors were not aware of? I mean, for example, in a complex situation or where something unexpected happened or went sideways? Sometimes nothing dramatic. Um, usually, I could, I could, you know, um, intuit if there was a, if the patient was starting to go downhill, you know, yes. and I could call the doctor or um, put something in place that would help them. Um, I did one time because I was religious. I'm not religious in my older age, <laughs> but I was a, a young person. And um, there was one time when a little um, infant was brought in, a gypsy baby, who was very, very sick. And they weren't doing very much with her. And I thought, this is such a shame. This is such a sweet baby. This is an innocent life. And I went ahead and took it on myself to baptize the baby and give it a blessing. And it recovered. <laughs> oh, now, I'm not saying I healed the baby. No, but it shows your care. I and care. I know yeah. that... Yeah. I know that in England, um, the relationship socially with the gypsy clans is very challenged and strained, yes. uh, as, as it is in other places. But um, so oftentimes they become marginalized. It's, and every culture has their marginalized people that aren't getting the care they should. And I just think it's wonderful that you took the care to do that. I feel very often that's my role in life. <laughs> Indeed. Well, now let's let's continue on and um, get you to the United States. That's back in '81, as I recall. Mm -hmm. And how you ended up involved with Purse at Princeton? Explain a little bit about that program and your transition from England over to America. Okay. Um, 
It's actually PEAR, P-E-A-R, the yes, Princeton Pear. Engineering Anomaly. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> when I, I said it, I was, I, was, I was mixing it up verbally with um, the uh, California, I think it's the California Empl- State Employees Pension Plan, not <laughs> Okay. PEAR. <laughs> Sorry. Much um, yeah, um, I came to the States. Um, I was married to an American and it did not turn out well. Um, but by that time, I didn't come for my green card, but I had my green card by that time. So I decided to stay and eventually became a citizen. And um, I stay. I was working at the time. Um, for the um, in medical research in uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey. And this was the um, University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey at the time. And uh, I started going down as a volunteer to two parapsychology labs at Princeton. There was the um, a, a parapsychological, physiological lab that closed down and then Pear, they invited me to go over to Pear and volunteer because I love doing this stuff. And um, after I'd been volunteering with them for maybe six months, they said, would you like to come work with us? So I went, yes, <laughs> yes. So they actually made a job for me. And what was that job? What were you was, hired yeah. to do? And who else was there? Because I know there are some other somewhat high profile people who were involved with Pear. Right. Um, I was basically um, a research assistant and I worked with Brenda Dunn, who was the manager. So she and I worked very much as a team and I was there five years. Um, um, Robert John was the director. He's since passed away. Um, of course, Brenda Dunn, Roger Nelson with his, um, he has the Global Consciousness Project, which you might find interesting to look into if you haven't already. Um, and a whole bunch of very talented, uh, intelligent people, and I loved it there. Everybody in the RV community, parapsychological community, alternative health, alternative energy, came through that lab to visit. And you were brought in specifically to do RV as remote viewing? Remote viewing? No, I came in to assist Brenda. <laughs> You were what? My role to assist Brenda. To assist Brenda. Okay. So now let's continue on because remote viewing became the better part of your life. Yeah. Well, at Pear, they were doing a a process called precognitive remote perception, which I've learned since was the civilian equivalent of what they were doing at the Stargate unit with the military, the remote viewing. So I had five years of um, remote perception work. We all participated in it as well as helped at the lab. And um, when I left Pear and came to um, um, Las Vegas, um, I met up with um, Paul Smith's brother. And um, Paul Smith, of course, was one of the army remote viewing um, originals and eventually got to train with him in remote viewing, controlled remote viewing, and with Lynn Buchanan. Yes. Okay, so now once you're trained in this, um, when did you start actually taking cases on and become part uh, part of teams that did this on a professional level? 
Actually, before I became trained, because I was using my own natural abilities and something yes. called coordinate remote viewing, was you would get a coordinate, uh, which was either a series of letters and numbers or a picture or um, a very low level front loading. This is, an, this is an object. This is a picture. So around 1994, I started working for a group in California, which was a breakoff group from um, Ed Dame SciTech group. Yes, and I think some of our viewers are familiar with Ed Dame, who I've also whom I've also interviewed, and then mm-hmm. of course followed Russell Targ's work for years. and And I've had uh, some experiences myself, actually, of remote viewing just in you know a classroom setting okay. where they say, "Okay, what's in the box?" You know that sort of thing. Right. And so I'm I'm a little bit familiar with it, but it it does take a unique kind of mind because once a person is married to the notion they have to be right, where that kind of fear slash ego comes in, it really can can dismantle those abilities quickly, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Whenever I get a case and I sit down with my pen and paper, um, I say, my cool down, some people use a cool down to just clear their mind, get grounded. I say, I know nothing, which means my ego knows nothing. So I'm just going to get the data, write it down, record it, and report it. Now, one of the people that was very well known um, early on in remote viewing, of course, was Ingo Swan. And I know you speak about him uh, from time to time. And there were other people in in Russell's program, such as Pat Price, um, who who died early on in in this work. Um, That's still a mystery. I think that's included in... Third Eye Spies, Russell's documentary is what happened, you know, to mm-hmm. this incredible remote viewer. So you were yes. you were actually among some pretty, you know, astounding, astoundingly talented people. But then you went on to do something I think that's just even more exciting. But before we get to that, let's talk about some of the cases that might be a little more high profile that you ultimately ended up with as a remote viewer. Okay. Um From around 2000, um, I started to be, um, to have more cases coming in, more clients. And um, one of the clients, um, I had two separate clients who wanted me to look at Amelia Earhart and her demise. So I did some work back in 96, 97, and then again around 2012. And so uh, I went, I did what's called ERV, which is extended remote viewing, which is just going with my mind and looking and reporting back data. And um, everybody said, no, that never happened. I saw her picked up off a beach by the Japanese, put into a ship, um, taken off to another location. So I had a, this second client who wanted me to bring in more remote viewers. And I have a small group of trained remote viewers around the United States called the Nevada Remote Viewing Group, the NRVG. (laughs) And I put it to them and we got a lot more information in. So I presented that in a report. I presented it at an IRVA conference, the Remote Viewing Association. And then recently the History Channel put out a documentary that confirmed all of our data And can you talk about that? What is it that you collectively saw? We saw her as the the group, of course, they gave different aspects of the data. Yeah. And um, showing that uh, she was 
picked up often at all. She was taken to another location by ship and she was imprisoned in uh, on Saipan Island. And she was a prisoner of the Japanese. Some, some of the viewers saw the Japanese flag. They saw, actually described a soldier in a Japanese uniform. Um, and I have written it up. I have a book called um, Seer. And you can also get the video of the talk from Irva. Um, and uh, as I was watching the, the documentary, the History Channel documentary of, of the Amelia, their search for Amelia, it was like checking all the boxes of our data. Just yeah. Very exciting. Even sketches of the location and the prisons. I love it. I mean, that has to be such incredibly gratifying work for you. Just to be able to have some kind of closure for individuals, because oftentimes these are cases that sometimes cold cases. Um, they're cases in which, you know, family members are left hanging there, never knowing. And that's just such torture, you know, to their, their hearts. And you had another case yeah. and it, um, it had to do with a DJ in Denver. Um, right. there. Let's talk about that also for a moment. Yeah, that was a case given to me by a colleague, um, Robert Knight, who is a, um, he's photographed all the greats in the rock and roll field I mean, for over decades. Um, so he said, I've got a case for you. I'm just going to give you a coordinate. So um, he gave me, a, it's a random series of letters and numbers. That's the address of the target, something for the viewer to focus on. And I saw a watery location. I saw it was brackish water, mixed seawater and fresh off an island, off an isthmus. Um, there was death. There was something wrong there. Something had gone seriously gone wrong. So I reported that back to him and he didn't want to believe what I'd seen. And he said, um, this is a friend of mine, friend of his that had gone missing for four weeks. They didn't know where he was. So eventually I brought in the NRVG and we got information for Robert um, that he was in the water, dead, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and um, that it was near somewhere in San Bernardino. Um, and um, there was lots of information that, that placed it off of the, the coast of California. Um, and, um, and then Robert was in, and his wife were in California, in LA, saw a documentary about a body that had been fished up out of the ocean off Catalina Island. Mm -hmm. And he said, that matches everything the viewers have told us. That must be um, our friend. So um, they contacted the, um, the office, you know, the, the morgue, and um, they, were, they were thought of as suspects for a while, Robert and his wife. And they were able to get corroboration of their credentials and alibis, etc. Mm -hmm. And it was his friend that had been uh, brought yeah. up. But then we were tasked to look for the, the murderer, where he went, etc. All of that data matched. It's such incredibly healing work because there's actually no other way for this work to be done. This is it. It's right. Yes. There is a role. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Without people such as yourself, we're not going to have these answers. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get into something along that line um, that goes deeper into history a little bit later. But now I'd like to go to um, any other cases you'd like to bring up 
uh, that you find particularly fascinating? Yeah, there are two recent ones. Um, one was we were tasked, I get, I never know what's coming across my desk. So I had an email from a colleague who said, um, there are some people down in Mexico on the ground there who were searching for a missing woman, missing girl, and they've run out of options. So they've asked the remote viewers. So I and one of my students decided that, okay, we're going to accept this. And we gave a lot of information and it's still a confidential case, so I can't tell you too much about it. But we sent that off to the data to the colleague who sent it down to the people on the ground, the searchers. And from our data, they knew where she was and where to go and look. And they got her out. So that was very gratifying. So when you have a team of people viewing together, how do you determine when there's enough information? Does it take two out of three, uh, five out of six or seven before you actually decide, okay, we're going to go with this? Okay, there's a, there's a potential pool of about 30 people. And once I send out an email to them, um, it depends who's, who's available, who wants to take on the, the case. And um, they are tasks, and it's usually around about 10 people uh, is an average, uh, sometimes more, sometimes less. And um, they will send back their, their data to me. I will then act as a, an analyst and look at the data they sent back, because by this time I've already done my, my stuff, or first thing, my remote viewing, before I even ask them. And... Um, they each come back with like pieces of the jigsaw puzzle is how I like to put it. And so I put it together into um, an analysis and a report and send that off to whoever has asked for the data. And so essentially if you have like several of them seeing the exact same thing or in a similar enough arena, that's a go. Right, right. I try and report all of the data if I can, because very often I don't know all the details of the case. So if I uh, if I censor something, then it might be that, um, you know, if I don't put it in, it could be a key piece of information that they need. Yes. So I usually put everything in, plus their sketches, plus their, sometimes their, their musings, if, uh, if they seem appropriate. Mm -hmm. And... Um, then we see, we see what we get. <laughs> yes. Well, okay. Now we're going to go on to what you call high strangeness, kind of a little more exotic application of your skills. And um, I find this fascinating and our viewers certainly will find it fascinating because I think human beings tend to be afraid of the unknown and others. And certainly in the conspiracy communities, um, you have all kinds of stories about every kind of being that is essentially other. So, Tell us about how you originally became involved in a project in which you had, you know, protocol questions that had been developed mm -hmm. with the intention of connecting with off-planet species. Okay. Um, I have always had an interest in off-planet stuff, always, right from being a kid. Um, and then it actually came into some fruition back in... Um, about 2012, uh, actually from 2003 was when I started working for um, a business client, which lasted nine years. So um, from 2003 to about 2006, 
we were working mainly on business projects and um, some other interests of his. And uh, then he, he called me one day and said, can you talk to the aliens? And I said, I don't know. I'll have to develop some kind of protocol for that. Mm-hmm. Um, remote viewing can see practically anything. So he said, well, if you can remote view people in my office and tell me about them and who they are and describe them, why can't you describe the aliens? So I said, well, let me think about it. So I put together a protocol that involved um, questionnaires that are asked of indigenous species on Earth that go out to remote areas, to locations where people know of the white man but don't you know know of us and but um don't have a they still retain all of their customs and traditions and ways of life so i adapted those questions to ask the ets and um, my client also supplied a whole bunch of questions and we started off with uh, five different races um, including the tall grays the the hybrids, the reptilians, the um, and then we didn't do the Anunnaki until later, um, but there were a total of twenty-one eventually. Um, and I sat down. I am not a medium. Um, I'm not a psychic in the traditional sense. But what I did was I wrote up all the questions into a report on my computer, sat down at my keyboard, and asked the first question. And I said, is there anybody out there that in this particular, say I was talking to the tall, tall greys, is there anybody out there that would like to answer these questions? And stuff came back. <laughs> so I'm going, okay. It's like being on a roller coaster. You go with it. Let me ask one question here. Now, did you specifically intend to speak, um, did you intend to speak to a specific group of beings or a yeah. class of beings and then you'd say if there are any tall grays out right. there like each session okay um, we talk to a specific race yes and i call them races um and uh so as i asked the as, as they as the answers came in i was typing them in and sometimes the answer was so weird i'd i'd have to ask a clarifying question what do you mean by that so I knew it wasn't coming from me and there wasn't enough time between me asking and the stuff coming back for it to be, you know, I tried to keep my own consciousness, my own opinions, everything clear of the picture. Okay. So now I want to get into some specifics because, um, because uh, partially because there is a, a lot of curiosity around the subject, of course, but also yeah. around certain species, there's a lot of fear. And more than anything, there are a lot of assumptions mm-hmm. about what they're doing here, uh, why, uh-huh. what, what their, what their intention is towards humanity and such. So let's start um, by talking about, since you brought them up, the tall greys to begin with, and what did they have? And we'll go through a number of groups, what each of them had to share with you um, about their culture, about the relationship to time, uh, the notion of creation and creativity, space, mm-hmm. uh, and us. Yeah, the tall greys have their own agenda. Um, they believe that they coexist with us. Um, they, they visit the earth and that's like a given. They, they, um, they get resources from the earth. 
they really feel that they're on a par with humans. They they think it's kind of humorous that we think we own the earth. Uh, <laughs> um, they talked about the abductions because I specifically asked about that through the clients' questions. And um, they said, abductions are fortunate. And I'm going, me, I'm going, no, 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 my internal, you know. And so I would ask questions about why is it fortunate? Well, because the hybrids that are developed become the ambassadors and go off into space and travel the universe. So my own consciousness is going, what? <laughs> but I am just like a reporter. I'm into like we're interviewing, you know. And I was writing down everything on my computer. And um, they really think that humans are limited. And I took a little bit of umbrage at that, thinking, well, that's putting us down. But we really are in many aspects limited. You know, the, some of the species are so ahead of us that we're just catching up. And I believe we will eventually. I believe so too. And I believe perhaps in certain areas we're already there. It's just that we're not aware of those own abilities and aspects of ourselves on a more yes. simple, spiritual and spiritual level. But one thing that's interesting, having interviewed some abductees along the way, is oftentimes, and I think John Mack's work, uh, Passport to the Cosmos and such, also indicated some of this, is that oftentimes after an abduction experience, um, one hallmark seems to be, aside from the breeding program, that the abductee is shown glimpses of the earth and shown glimpses of future scenarios um, with an eye toward creating a deeper sense of responsibility toward our, mm -hmm. our planet. Another thing that seems to happen is they indicate that their abilities on an intuitive or psychic level seem to be enhanced after these abductions, yes. so they're working with them. Any comments on that from your perspective? I think what happens is because some of the abductions, are, and I, you know, I don't think that's the right word for the the experience, but I'll call it that. Um, sometimes they're very traumatic, and I yes. think it awakes a dormant um, intuitive sense in people. So the intuition is already there. It's not that it's given to the abductee, but it's awakened. That's um, very interesting because trauma does do these things mm -hmm. to us. I think of so many other people I've interviewed on near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, and so oftentimes it was inspired by a very traumatic event. So mm -hmm. you're saying it's it's simply the the shock is allowing these other aspects so. to bubble to the surface for our use. That's fascinating. Yes, yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the tall greys um, are very much hive mind because I asked, am I talking to one or many? And they said, you, you're talking to all of us. So that was an interesting aspect. It is. Now, where are they from? Are these interdimensional or are they third dimensional from another planet? Where do they say they're from? They're extra dimensional that travel interdimensionally. Okay. <laughs> Put it that way. Okay. All right. So there's no limitation. They're not bound by uh, space in that sense. No. And it seems like a common theme just from what I've heard you say before is that there is a completely different notion of time and how time operates within a lot of these species. Uh, maybe just comment on it with them for a moment, and then we're going to go to the small grays. 
Okay. Um, it's, we think of time as fixed and linear, our, our, our human sense. Um, but that is just Earth time. Once you start getting off planet, time is not, it's fluid. <laughs> and I like to think of that in my own life. I, I say to people, there is no time, there is no space. We can, we can manipulate time and space um, to, for our, you know, ours and others' benefits. Um, and uh, so when I, my client was asking about time aspects, they would say, no, we don't, we don't think in terms of linear time. Um, and I've come to realize, too, that very much time is circular. Um, and that seems to, it doesn't, their aspect of time is alien. <laughs> it's alien time, which is right. incomprehensible to us. Yes. Okay, another thing that's coming up here uh, is that if you say that they're here in part because they're gathering and utilizing some of the Earth's resources, mm -hmm. that they're not from a physical domain as we know it, but more extra dimensional, how would they be used? What resources would they be using them and toward what end if they're of a material nature? Um, from what they told me and what I've read of others is they, they come and they get water because they know this is the blue planet. And so they're able to take water, um, minerals, boron, and um, other, other minerals. And um, they did tell me a few things. I've actually put together, a friend of mine had put together a big Excel database of all of the data from the ET interviews that I have, and it's freely available if anybody wants to email Where me. can we find it? it? They can email me okay. at mindwiseconsulting at gmail.com, yes. and I'll be happy to email it to anybody freely. Oh, that's that's such a kind that's a such a kind gift. Um, let's go on to the small grays because those are the ones I think that are the most common, especially in abduction scenarios, mm -hmm. the, creating trauma through what the the participant feels is an absolute lack of empathy. For example, that's how yeah. the experience experiencer feels it, and understandably. Yeah, but again, they were very similar in mindset and um, group hive mind and focus and uh, purpose as the large grays. The large grays seem to be more in control and more able to perhaps be autonomous sometimes, um, you know, in choosing to talk to me, for example. Um, but um, they seem to be not robotic, but very much um, behaving very similarly. So if you saw one, you would know what others were, what they could do or were about to do. Mm -hmm. so there's a predictive element to them. And what did you find fascinating about uh, that particular, the small gray breed, a race? That they were very concerned with each other. Um, there was the hive mind, so there was very much, um, they could not, they always had to work as a group mind. Um, and there really was not a huge amount of autonomous thinking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. And I think that's kind of the feeling that people who have met with them 
a takeaway from it as well, that it has to be good for the whole, that there isn't that sense of individuality. Let's move on to another race that's very recognizable to us and others have written about over time. Um, and that is the Nordic race. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, they, when I interviewed them, they referred to themselves as the whites. And I've since read Charles Hall's books about the tall whites who were up in um, central Nevada that he came across when he was working with the Air Force. Uh, those are fascinating books if anybody gets to read them. Yes. Um, millennial Hospitality. And the second book, he's written five, but the second book, I believe, I feel is the very best one, or the one to begin with, Charles Hall. Yes. And... Um, he was um, put out there as a um, an airman to let off air balloons to measure air, you know, the wind currents, etc. But that seemed to be a secondary purpose that they they asked him to perform. Um, and he very quickly came into contact with these beings and reported back. I saw this white coyote out in the desert that was standing up on its hind legs. That was really weird. <laughs> but as people, I'm not going to spoil his story, but uh, it is a fascinating story. So, so what did they tell you about themselves? They said that um, they, um, they're very much, um, they like people, they like humans. Not, they, the the, um, the greys had no real feeling either way. It was just they were there for resources. Um, the whites actually, um, the tall whites, the Nordics, felt very um, in resonance with us. And they said that they actually have Earth-based um, members of their race. And sometimes they've been here for centuries and living in plain sight or hiding in plain sight. What would be some of their chief characteristics in terms of people saying, you know, differentiating, say, a human from them? Or can you even differentiate? I've learned to. Um, and if I do happen to encounter um, such an individual who might either be um, tall, white or hybrid, then I treat them with great respect, with great honor, great um, I would not out them, <laughs> you know. Um, I really want to respect their their role because um, they know how humans react to others. Yes, with fear, our own race. Yes. Right. Um, so they they want to remain living here, doing their their work. What are the, what is their work here? Why are they here on Earth, and where are they from? Um, they really didn't. Um, they weren't specific about their location, definitely off planet. Um, and um, they're here to learn. So some of them come just for six months and um, they're just learning about humans. Others are um, here to assist and aid and work alongside humans. So very much in a helping role. And also, but the main factor is learning. And how would you, uh, I asked this earlier, you say you can tell the difference. Are there certain or kind of chief characteristics um, physically or in mannerism and such where someone would know if they were, had encountered a Nordic? 
Um, they seem different. They're tall, very tall and, and slim and um, very, very, very pale. In fact, um, one um, that I encountered here in Boulder City in Nevada uh, wore a lot of heavy pancake makeup, even when she was at the pool. <laughs> okay. So um, there were, and there are lots of, um, you know, there are lots of other stories that I'm going to put into another book eventually mm -hmm. because there is a hotel in Boulder City that seems to be like the cafe at the end of the earth. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Where people, you know, individuals, ET individuals, they call them, come and go. That's fascinating. Not, you mean not just the, the Nordics, but others as well? Uh-huh. Yes. Oh, yeah. fascinating. I can't wait to read that book. And <laughs> I know people are going to now take field trips to Boulder City trying to find the hotel. <laughs> right. But don't ask the managers because they will not admit that there are ghosts there or ETs. You, know, you have to go in and just do your own research confidentially. Yes, well, I would imagine. Um, yeah. <clears throat> let's talk about uh, another species, and that is the reptilian species, because that's the one I think most humans have learned to be afraid of, especially in the last 40 years, um, since more kind of um, underground and even conspiratorial uh, stories have come up. Right, and I, I do believe that they are also Earth resident, um, as well as they told me that they pilot the ships. But I think there's much, much more to their roles. Um, the reptilians didn't want to talk to me. They didn't want me to interview them at first. But I, I'm pretty stubborn. So I just persisted <laughs> and said, I do. I want to talk to you. So finally, they started answering some of the questions. They gave me a lot of no responses. I put NR in the transcripts because there was no response from them. But some of the questions that really struck me were I asked them, what happens if you encounter a human on board a craft? And they said, first of all, that they would ignore them. And I said, what if you couldn't? What they said, well, we would make a loud noise at them. And I could just imagine the fear that would engender from this creature making a noise at them. I said, okay, if the loud, and I pushed, I said, if the loud noise doesn't um, get them out of your way, what else do you do? And they said, well, we push them. So again, I could imagine that would be a really traumatic event. Um, there was not as much information coming from the reptilians as the other species, but enough to show that I wouldn't want to meet them in a dark alley on a dark night. <laughs> well, this is interesting. Um, I just did an interview with someone at Gaia um, who our audience is familiar with, both my, my audience here and at Gaia. And uh, I won't give names at the moment, but when she was a little girl, um, her father had some nefarious dealings. Mm -hmm. And when she was a little girl, these people would come around and she tried to warn her parents, these are not who you think they are. These people mm -hmm. aren't what they say they are. And she said it was horrifying to her because they actually, from her eyes, she was seeing what we now call reptilians. They had yeah. scales and tails. And so how this whole notion of reptilians either as a hybrid species or more so a, a, the ability to cloak as a human. I think that's what a lot of people are, are, sort of, are frightened of. Can you comment on that a bit? It's a natural fear um, of something that's very different and very potentially aggressive. 
And um, this fear of this reptilian fear is, I think, in our genes from way, way back, <laughs> you know, in history and in, in our, uh, you know, so even perhaps from our pre-human ancestry. Um, so it could be that we've been interacting with them for, uh, I don't know, Forever. millions, yeah, millions of years. Yeah. Is there a hybridization between our species? A small aspect, yes. There, what I found out there was there was um, hybrids are mainly um, human, grey, Nordic, and a little reptilian if it's if it's necessary because they do send out some of the hybrids that are not returned out as ambassadors. Okay. All right. Well, th yeah, thank you for that. And I'm not surprised that they didn't really want to speak up that much about their mm -hmm. presence here and what they're up to. And um, so uh, let's move on to the Anunnaki, because that's another one. If you watch the History Channel and Ancient Aliens, every single story kind of ends ultimately with, well, it was the Anunnaki. Um, it, it's kind of a pat answer. But from your point of view, what... What did you learn about the Anunnaki? Okay, the first thing I asked them was about um, the Sumerian texts and um, the, uh, you know, the translations, etc. And um, they said that is partially true, but in any any aspect, when you've got ancient texts or you've got um, somebody translating those texts, they're not going to get it all hundred percent right. They said uh, humans were never treated as slaves. They, humans were our children, which I, I thought was interesting because there's when always they, been this. When they say children, do they mean uh, literally as in hybridization of some kind or cloning Both. of some kind? Both. And, and training and um, knowledge. Um, they do, they did harvest gold, they did mine gold. Um, I didn't really go a lot into that, um, the early history, but that was one of the things they said was it wasn't all correct. The, what we know now about them and their early history isn't all correct. What part um, that Sitchin, for example, mm -hmm. uh, Zechariah Sitchin brought through, did they feel was not an accurate portrayal? Um, where were some of the differences here? Um, the slave aspect, very much so. Yes because they, they took sort of almost a, a startle response to that. No, no, you know, humans were our children, are our, our children. And um, the other thing, the more modern aspect is that they are here on Earth. And they're here on Earth, okay, so. The modern, yeah, the modern descendants. <laughs> You've yeah. given us, uh, and in the, in the this is a hybridized species, so that shouldn't be surprising to anyone. But as you told us what sort of traits you notice in some of the um, Nordic beings um, that you find friendly to Earth and here to learn on short stints, um, what do you find in, as far as how um, an Anunnaki or Anunnaki hybrid might appear to us on Earth? They appear very human. Um, they are often very tall. Um, sometimes mistaken for the Nordics. Um, they're very much in the, um, the helping realms. They're very much the volunteers. They're the people who go in and help, assist. You will find them in um, children's homes, nursing homes, senior centers, co community projects. They will be people there. 
they feel, I think that is part of their role is to assist. And um, so that's where you would find them most likely. And let's talk about now, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Um, let's talk about orbs because most people see these right. light and, you know, have absolutely, we all see them, have absolutely no clue what these are about. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I saw a physical orb in Princeton one time, which I wrote about. Um, and um, when I started asking the orbs, um, could I, could I talk to them? Could I ask them questions? And they said, that's what we're here for. We carry information. They appeared sentient, which means that they think they have a, a, they're able to think for themselves. They're interdimensional, they're intergalactic, they're everywhere. And they travel, they act as couriers, they act, they carry information. And very often when you see an orb with Sometimes there can be um, pictures, you know, in the orb. People see faces or um, very much that's just information. It's not that they're carrying the spirit of somebody or um, it's just information. So that is their role uh, as messengers carrying information. They can be called, as a lot of people know. And, um, you know, people will call them in and take photographs and there's like thousands of them. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, that's beautiful. Um, let's maybe have you, instead of me selecting, why don't you choose another species that you found really interesting? Um, I mean, we could go on. As you said, ultimately, there were 21. And people can read about in the, your book, uh, which is it, the title of it is Voices from the Cosmos. Right. And if you go to Amazon, put my name in Angela Thompson-Smith. Yes. You will, Thompson with a P you'll see I've got eight books yes yeah and this particular one is referring to what you've learned about these species pick up one more one or two more that you found really fascinating okay the most interesting one and it was at the end of the year when we were doing the interviews and we had to stop because the client came under some um, harassment harassment um, was the RAL the the species on Mars with the the RAL, the RAL, R A L, okay, yeah, with a double L, yes, and um, they st- they told us that they are very much present on Mars, but mainly underground. That they have water, that they have food, they grow food, um, and um, which is now being confirmed that they're actually. Yes are minerals there is underground water and this is all now being confirmed after the fact which is very satisfying yes indeed Um, they i asked them about the the rovers you know the mars rovers and uh, they said well we thought they were gifts for us because some of the rovers just were lost right and they said uh we didn't know who these were from but as they kept coming they figured out these were from somewhere else and that they were not meant for them. But in the beginning, when the rovers first started appearing on Mars, the RAL felt that they were gifts for them. So how did they yeah. feel about that potential? Um, oh, well, I mean, you could look at it on one level, I think, as as some people in this world on earth would say is almost colonization of Mars by human beings. How do they feel about the potential of earthlings um, living on Mars? We didn't go into that a great deal. 
because I had the set questions. Yes. And, um, reading Voices in the Cosmos gets a little tedious sometimes because the same questions were asked of each race. And people say, why couldn't you ask them something else? Well, we had a, a plan. We had yes. A and um, so we didn't go too much into the colonization. They, they expressed a curiosity about humans and a, uh, a wish to perhaps meet them. Um, and they actually said, where are the humans? Interesting. And this was back, of course, in two th- around 2006, seven. So, um, you know, they were, they were curious about humanity. Well, and then, of course, there are these military stories that come out from, you know, Robert Dean and other who's since passed and others saying yes. we have already established bases on Mars and that we already have underground facilities there and such. And that's why I was asking if they had any comment on that, because they, yeah, they didn't at that time. Yeah. But I, I feel I feel it's somewhere in the middle from outright denial that we're there to all of the fantastic stories that I hear. So somewhere in the middle is the truth. Yes, as is usually the case. Um, Well, Angela, now you're going to be in November at uh, Paula Harris's conference, Starworks. I'm going to be there. Russell Targ is going to be It's going to be exciting. And this one is going to be dedicated to remote viewing. Mm -hmm. And I know you also teach. Um, you'll, do, you'll do workshops and lectures and help people uh, come in connection with those skill sets in themselves, right? Well, before, um, before and after the conference, I will be holding some classes here in Boulder City, which okay. is about an hour away from the conference. From the yes. conference. Um, at the, when I'm giving my talk, um, I will give an experiential session. So I will be asking the audience to actually remote view. It very simply. Wonderful. Do. Yeah. That's going to be fun. I've been in those before and it is a lot of fun. And you surprise yourself and say, oh my God, how could I have known that? Right? Well, right. it's all connected. It's yes. all fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any final thoughts before we sign off here? And I'll let everybody uh, once again um, know how to get hold of you. Yeah. I'm at the conference. I'm actually, um, I haven't discussed this with Paula yet, Paula Harris, who's yes. managing, who's putting on the conference, but I'm going to elaborate on my, um, there's a talk on YouTube, remote viewing, high strangeness. Yes. And um, there's a lot more confirmation come in since that talk. So I want to elaborate on that talk and add in new data, new remote viewing projects. So that's going to be very exciting for all of us. I can't wait to hear your talk. And in the interim, people can, again, go on Amazon and order any number of your books, Angela Thompson Smith, um, and the one we were talking about a bit ago, Voices from the Cosmos. And again, to um, reach you directly for uh, transcripts of these, um, the data that was given from the ET species, as you said, you will do that freely. Right. Right. MindWise Consulting. MindWise, W-I-S-E, consulting at gmail.com, right? Right. All one. Yeah. All one one. Yeah. Very good. Hey, I want to thank you so much, Angela. Um, You have such a such a grace and a credibility about you. It's really what Thank makes you. the subject work for people and a huge heart. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to meeting you in the flesh. And until then, I just want to say thank you for sharing your work with all of us. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Thank you.
Okay, everybody, once again, mindwiseconsulting.com to reach Angela directly. And that's also, um, even if you have uh, something really, you know, challenging that's come up, um, like we said, Angela and her group still work on cases. So feel free to reach out to her on that level as well. And of course, um, to attend Starworks USA conference in November. Until next time, thank you for joining us here at reginameredith.com.